This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, the FAA has some new guidance about instrument training. And longtime general aviation pilot and supporter, Senator James Inhofe, is set to retire. A cap worn by Amelia Earhart fetches a ton of money. We're going to get the latest from the Heli Expo. Finally, we break down the situation in Ukraine and what it means for aviation. And Ian, we have a special guest today, Beverly Weintraub, and you caught up with her. Thanks for doing that. No problem. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it. From AOPA. Your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Hi, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulitz. David, like you mentioned, we're talking to Bev a little bit later on, and she has written this book, Wings of Gold. It's about the first female aviators in the Navy. It's a fascinating book, super well done, a history I knew nothing about, and I, I totally recommend it to everybody. And so we're going to talk to her about why the book came about, what these women accomplished, and, and the legacy that they've left. All right, so hey, the news. I want to start with the FAA. They're... Now, I have to admit, I missed this completely because I did my instrument prior to all this. In fact, I got my double eye prior to all this. However, there is a requirement when you're going through your instrument rating that you have to do an instrument long cross country that I know. The reg has always said you have to do three different type of approaches. Apparently, the FAA until recently had taken a position that those were actually different navigation systems. In other words, you would have to use, say, for instance, a GPS and or an ADF and or a DME and or VOR. Yeah. So, and I recently did a long IFR cross country with Ooh, my instructor you Keith use? West. Well, I was in a Cessna 172 and I used an RNAV approach at one airport. I used a VORA circling approach at another airport and I used the ILS at a third airport. It was great though. So I wonder how that shakes out in, with the, the interpretation for this reg. So apparently back in the mid 2000s, somebody asked the FAA for a letter of interpretation about this reg. I don't know why, it seems to be very clearly written. The FAA said, no, you need to have it from three different types of navigation systems. Systems, systems themselves. Yes, not what the reg actually says, which is three different types of approaches. So what you did the other day is correct. And now thankfully somebody had come to the AOPA, asked AOPA to look into this. AOPA pushed the FAA to get another interpretation, the correct interpretation, and they have done that. They put out a memo very recently, a couple of days ago, that basically says, no, 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 we're all on the same page here. It just needs to be those three different types of approaches. 
Well, my mind is set at easy, and I, my main my main concern is that I apparently did it the right way. You did, yeah, you don't so, have to do it again. That's right. But I think instructors have always interpreted it correctly, at least in the past few years, yeah. as to having those three different types of approaches. And you know, many aircraft do have uh, at this point. We do have a GPS in the panel, so that gives us one different system. Yeah. Yeah, so GPS and VOR, yeah. Yeah, you'll have a VOR yeah. you know, or an ILS. So typically you have two different systems there. It makes you wonder, though, people who are taking this by the letter, the interpretation, like what were they doing? Would you go out and like rent an airplane with an ADF and do an NDB approach, or would you go find a PAR somewhere? I mean, it's it's not easy to find. Gosh, I hope I never have to do an ADF approach yes. again. Yeah, no. <laughs> I hear you. Especially in a high wind situation. Let's please spare me from that. All right. Well, you want you want to move on to some other yeah. interesting news in the GA world? This kind of took us by surprise. Yeah, yeah. Certainly you and I. Senator James Inhofe, who is a, well, the staunchest of supporters of general aviation, very active pilot himself, senator from Oklahoma. He has announced he will retire from the Senate. He has been serving there since 1994. And if you're looking for that aviation person in Congress, he is that guy. He is influential. He has gone to bat numerous times for aviation. He has done everything from the Pilots' Bill of Rights to staving off user fees to uh, basic men. Indeed, basic men, I think, was one of his bigger victories. And, you know, he's had a 30-year career in Congress and the Senate. And one of his other victories, and some folks might remember this, had to do with Bob Hoover. He was on the front line of aviation great Bob Hoover when I think Hoover, didn't Hoover's medical get pulled for some yeah, reason back yanked. in 99? Yeah. And that was a big deal. So uh, Senator Inhofe was involved with that. You know, I've uh, run into him several times at EA AirVenture. He almost always sits down with Mark Baker mm -hmm. and ha has a little discussion. They talk about what's important for GA the next term, you know, basically the next Congress term, Congre and not the next congressional year when c Congress meets again. He's always seemed like he's been extremely helpful, like you said, in person and behind the scenes in legislation pushing a lot of this forward. Yeah. So the retirement is he's given a lot of notice. It's going to be in about a year. And as Baker says, we'll continue to work together through that time, but definitely wish him all the best. David, Amelia Earhart, an icon of, of classic aviation, a mystery that will probably never be solved. But we do have a few artifacts, including a flight cap, and one just sold at auction. It's a fascinating story. Yeah, although she has never been found yet, and there's there's quite a cottage industry that has grown up about around trying to trace trace her route and trace artifacts from her um, in the Pacific. Yeah. But you know her flight cap, which was a leather flight cap, mm -hmm. it was expected to fetch about eighty thousand dollars at auction, which that's a lot of money, eighty thousand. Yeah. But it was auctioned February 26th, and the final price was $825,000. Amazing. Enough to buy a Cirrus SR-22. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Something tells me that the person who bought this has airplanes much bigger and much faster and can fly much farther than a Cirrus. I mean, if you've got that kind of money to blow on a, on a hat. Right on a leather hat, <laughs> but now the leather the leather hat had some unique qualities to it, though. Ian, we were yes. talking about this offline. Yes, it did. Well, I want to talk about the backstory first okay. because that is really interesting. The first thing you always look at with these things is like, really, how do we know this is her cap? Right? Is it authentic? Exactly. Yeah, 
and the story is great. Basically, a family in Minnesota has owned this since 1929. Awesome. When apparently they went to see her at the Women's National Air Derby, known at the time as the Powderpuff Derby by Will Rogers. I believe it is now the Air Race Classic. Ah, yes, that's true. That's what it's become today, yeah. And that's tied into our special guest. To Bev later on. Who has raced in the Air Race Classic, yes. That's right. So anyway, they were in Cleveland. And she was this this woman was a young woman who was watching the race. Somebody found the cap on the ground, I guess, and, and presented it to her. And they've kept it in the family ever since and have decided just now to sell it. And her name was inscribed on the inside of the cap. Yep. And as the story goes, Jill Tallman tracked this down. And as the story goes, the handwritten name remains wonderfully bold and the leather of the sleek cap still smooth and supple as it approaches its centennial. Amazing. Very cool stuff. Yeah, there are ear pocket holes for the communications. And it does, I mean, you got to say from the photo, it looks, it is an incredible shape. So I don't know how they stored it, but they did a darn good job at it because leather that old, you know, can disintegrate. So looks great. That's uh, it's quite a story. And we'll be right back. We'll go from that to, I don't want to say the future, but what's happening right now from the past to what's happening right now, which is the Helicopter Expo, Heli, H-A-I, has an annual expo. And Ian, I know you're a helicopter pilot from way back, and you recently got additional ratings in the rotorcraft world. So tell us a little bit about some of the, t- maybe the top three stories that you think are going to come out of HAI. Yeah. Well, so I suppose one of the notable things, it's, a, it's an in-person show. It's being held in Dallas this year, and I, it's pretty successful. I would say it's a little light on news compared to past years, but that's maybe to be expected. Industry's rebounding, which is great. A few things for the lighter end of the market, which is what we're always interested in. You know, we just talked a couple weeks ago about Enstrom, the fact that they went into Chapter 7 liquidation. In fact, you wrote that story, Ian, and that was news to me. But yeah, that that was terrible. They had a 60-year history of making helicopters. Yep, and and they sort of hinted that it was going to be quick, or they hoped it was going to be quick, and it, and it is. So Midtech's Aviation, a company that I had never heard of, but I think is kind of a, we'll call it an MRO-type facility, they have uh, entered into an agreement to purchase the assets Great. of Enstrom. Yep, they will reopen the factory, rehire a lot of the same folks, I think. Interestingly, they're already talking about eVTOL and some other stuff, and that's because Enstrom is really vertically integrated. They make, they, I think they point out, and we saw when we toured the factory, like 90% of the helicopter on site, which is amazing. It's really just like the engine and the avionics that they get from outside. So this, I think, is going to be expected to close quickly, and uh, I think people just need to hold, sit tight just a little bit longer because stuff will be available very soon. Well, your article was optimistic you know, based on the optimism of the folks there at Instagram, so I'm glad that a buyer has been located. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little There's some more news that you know about. What about Schweitzer? You said that there might be some news coming out of that company, another longtime manufacturer. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Helicopter pilots love the Schweitzers. You're either a Robinson person or or not. And if you're not, your choices are kind of Schweitzer and to a certain extent Enstrom, although there aren't a ton of Enstroms out there. There are a ton of Schweitzers. So there's a lot of interest in parts availability. And the, the new type certificate holder, which is also down in Texas, has been doing a great job, as I understand it, pumping out parts. They have also said they're going to restart manufacturing. Of course, Everybody who buys a type certificate says they're going to restart manufacturing. Very few of them do. But Schweitzer, in this case, did. And they did build a helicopter last year, sold it to an Afro, somewhere in Africa, I believe. And I think I saw on Facebook that Schweitzer is, they have brought another 
helicopter that they have built to the show. So that that is very exciting. Awesome. Very good news from Schweitzer. And you, you did bring up a good point. Another Texas company that we talk about in the fixed wing world, Mooney, yeah. um, was purchased not long ago. But their their plans still did not include making new aircraft. So mm. Schweitzer has done it. They made a couple of, uh, of rotorcraft. That's outstanding news. Yeah. Yep. And then the other thing that we always talk about is, you know, Robinson numbers. Robinson always gives a very candid press conference, lots of transparency there. And uh, it was a good year, I think. Last year, they always they give their delivery numbers, which we know had just been announced at, at um, Gamma anyway. At Gamma, sure, yeah. right. So they had a 37% increase, which is great. 450 helicopters out the door, which is really nice. And I think they had growth in kind of all sectors. So I, I would say they're, they're doing great, and, and that's good news. Good news for folks in the training world that depend on that R-22. But you know, the R-44 and the R-66 are are also strong performers. Mm-hmm. I've had quite a few flights in the R-44 and just a couple in the R-66, which is, you know, turbine helicopter. But great news for them, and uh, that company is still going gangbuster. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on the shipments and the, the deliveries for the next year, too. Yeah. So we want to finish off today something that I know you're really passionate about talking about, David, and that's what's going on in, in Ukraine with the war there. And so obviously people are watching this from all over the world. And there are much bigger implications than aviation, but of course that's our world, so we're going to talk about that. There are some GA manufacturers based there, and there's a long, proud aviation history in Ukraine. So Dave Hirschman and Tom Horn wrote a really nice story kind of detailing some of what's going on there, starting with flight design, which I, I have to admit, I didn't know they were building stuff in Ukraine. Yeah, Flight Design has a factory located in Kyrgyzstan, and that's a city of about 300,000 people in the southeastern portion of Ukraine. And that's where Russian troops took control, you know, shortly after that. I don't know if we're able to call it a war or not, but a a military act is what uh, Russia is calling it. And shortly after that started. And so that really brings up some problems and some concerns for the workers there that are trying to pump flight design aircraft out the door. Flight Design USA has about 25 airplanes on order right now. Mm. And so getting those aircraft completed and shipped is a problem, but also the employees' yeah. safety. That's, an, that's another big concern. Yeah. So they, they did say, which I think is a great offer. So Tom Beguini, uh, the U.S. rep for flight design, says that they have offered that I've always thought of flight design from the Czech Republic. And of course, that's, exactly. that's where I guess the completion facility is and, and that they have offered to move the workers and their families to the Czech Republic, which I think is fantastic. That's going to be a hard decision for those folks, obviously. But they are trying to get those airframes up to the to the facility in the Czech Republic. And they are still obviously working there in the Czech Republic. So It'll sort of to be seen what'll happen there with the flight design supply. Yeah, and our, our like you said, our hearts do go out to them. Let's jump from there to Aeroprac. This is another aircraft that Dave Hirschman actually he tested it against. If I recall, it was against a Super Cub on floats. Yeah, yeah, they put them on floats. Yeah. So it's a LSA. They they manufacture their aircraft also in Ukraine. And there are issues there, too. So the, there are orders for these aircraft, and they're backed up, basically. Mm. But they're hoping to keep making the airplanes until they can't make them anymore, said Dennis Long, a dealer for Aeroprac here in the States. And this is also a, a problem, you know, trying to get the aircraft that are made out the door and shipped as well. 
So we have to stay tuned on that because, you know, sales in the light sport aircraft market have been pretty strong in the past uh, couple of years. So there's a lot of uncertainty even there with Aeroprac. Now, what about some of the bigger manufacturers, Ian? Yeah, well, let's start with the biggest. So that's kind of the Ukrainian side. Let's go to the Russian side. Um, okay. And that is their start with their aggression and into Antonov. So the 225, the monster, the beast, largest airplane in the world. What? I hate these designations because it's always like, what is largest? Is it the longest or the whatever? We'll call it the heaviest. And to me, the largest. It's it's an airplane I think most pilots have seen and know about. It's just an incredible machine, the AN-225. It was the one and only was destroyed. And by now we've probably all seen the photos by an attack. They have said they're, they're going to rebuild it and uh, send Putin the bill. But uh, I'm not so sure they're going to get it paid. A $3 billion bill estimated to repair that aircraft It is a billion, billion with a B. Ian, six engines on that thing, 290-foot wingspan, mm-hmm. and able to lift, uh, this is this will blow your mind as far as um, what it can lift. One, am, am I reading this right? 1,410,958 pounds of potential loaded weight. Amazing. Wow. God. 32 wheels support that load. <laughs> and an onboard crane can lift 30,000 kilos. Oh, and wow. and some, of the, some of the freight has included trains, up to 50 cars, power transformers, turbine blades, and helicopters. Yeah, 50 cars. Wow, that just goes to show how large the, the cargo hold is. I've, se- you know, I've seen its baby a few times. The, what is it? AN-124? 124? 124, yeah. Uh-huh. I've seen that a few times. And, and it, I know it goes up through Anchorage and stuff like that, too. Even that thing is a monster. So I've never seen the 225 in person, but you have to imagine it's just incredible. Yeah, a lot of stories circulated online and in social media about this. And there were, like you said, there were some news reports that centered on that ANT-25 because it's like the flagship of, of, of the Ukrainian, you know, mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem. But yeah. now can I, can I mention one other thing? When we're talking about Ukrainian people, we've, we've got some outreach support um, that was headed our way from Brad Dam over at Cub Crafters. Mm. So uh, Cub Crafters, if folks want to help the Ukrainian people themselves, there's a, a GoFundMe page that's set up. And Brad says that 100% of the funds that they receive will go to help feed, shelter, clothe, transport, and provide medical care for the Ukrainian refugees crossing the border to Poland. And there's a Poland, Poland tie-in to Cub Crafters because they have a, a facility out there as well. Interesting. So let me see if I could find that uh, fundraising site. I'll just mention the name real quick. It's pretty easy to find. The GoFundMe.com. Just look for Cub Crafters Ukraine Refugee Relief, and they've already raised $14,000, um, and we just heard about this yesterday. Fantastic. So that's good. That's good. And, like, one last thing before we leave this. We know there's lots of sanctions. In fact, the... I don't have the legal language in front of me, but it basically forbids Russian nationals from operating aircraft in the United States. And so that's actually caught up some GA pilots who are who have dual nationalities and are just a little confused about what their sort of rights and responsibilities are these days. So we have heard from some of that. But of course, it's also affecting Epic. Well, I should say you would assume it's affecting Epic. Epic aircraft, is, right. Yes, which is owned by 
uh, Russian national. However, they have said, nope, we're totally full steam ahead. No problem. No worries. So David, I just, I want to bring on Bev now and great writer, fantastic book, but the women that she's written about here, it's really hard to imagine the kind of sacrifices they made and the pressure that they faced and what they were able to accomplish. But you know, we're talking about the first woman to fly a tactical Navy jet, the first to command an aviation squadron, the first female hurricane hunter. Many made their careers in the Navy, and they face things, what she's going to talk about, like not being able to even fly to the ship for which they were trained for. So just a, a great story. Bev, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me. So you've written this just fascinating, fascinating book about a history that I think people may have sort of heard about, or if they lived through that time, certainly they were aware. But this is really in-depth about the first women naval aviators. Um, you're a pilot, and I saw you gave a shout-out to the 99s. So tell me, before we get to the book, a little bit about you and, and your flying background. Okay, well, um, I fell in love with airplanes when I was eight years old, the first time I flew commercial, and it was fascinating. I wanted to know how this worked and what all those signs on the runway meant and all the taxiway markings. And when I was a teenager, I told my parents I wanted to learn to fly and got that, you know, that look from my mother, that over my dead body look. <laughs> I did float the idea of um, the serving in one of the military academies, going that route, and she was not having any of it. I found out much later in my life that my father and his entire family were airplane crazy. Oh, wow. But he didn't really have anything to say in that conversation with my mom, unfortunately, so I didn't get my private until um, I was an adult with children of my own. But my kids, I did finally start to fly. My kids got so jaded. They were like, do we have to fly again? Yeah, it's a problem, isn't it? Yeah, it's a struggle. <laughs> I also am a journalist. I worked for 24 years at the New York Daily News, and a former colleague of mine works in the opinion section of the Washington Post. So over the years, when something has happened involving women in airplanes, I get an email, would you write something? Hmm. So I've written a number of pieces for the Washington Post and for the New York Daily News about aviation. I covered aviation for the Daily News editorial board. And when Captain Mariner passed away in 2019, and the Navy did the first all-woman missing man flyover at her funeral, I got an email from my colleague. This is really interesting. It made national headlines. Would you write something? So I wrote, wrote a piece, and um, an editor at Lions Press saw it, and a couple months later sent me an email and said, we think this would make a really interesting book. Wow. And that's how we became acquainted with this, this cohort of women. Wow. So it's, it's not a story necessarily that you had followed or, or maybe really knew in depth. It was really just the spark from, uh, from a news head. That's amazing. Right. I mean, of course, you know, I've been a 99 for a couple of decades. You know, I knew the history of the WASP. I knew mm -hmm. how the, some of the challenges of women in aviation, female aviators in the military, but I was not aware of these particular women and the history they made. Okay. So set the stage for us. The book is, you do go into some history and, and a little bit of modern stuff, but it's primarily about six women, centers around these six women who, I don't know what the right word is. I don't want to say recruited per se, but I guess signed up, right? Well, they actually sort of were recruited. Okay. 
I mean, when um, when Admiral Zumwalt realized that he had a huge personnel and morale problem when he took over as chief of naval operations, one of the solutions was to open opportunities across across the Navy, with some exceptions, to women. And that included flight training. So they did go out and actively seek officers and officer trainees for the program. They wanted eight. They found four. So then Navy recruiters were instructed to go out and find some civilians. And they found four more civilians. One of each group dropped out early. Okay. So... These these six women are considered the first, I guess, in the sense that they went through the program together, right? And they were and they were given their their wings roughly at the same time. Roughly at the same time, although they were not actually all together ever at the same time. They were not a class per se. They were recruited as part of this effort, and they were the first women to officially go through U.S. military flight training. The WASP, who deserve all the credit, of course, were technically civilians, and they were all pilots before they came in. These were the first. Right. Military female aviators. Okay. And this is the early 70s. And, and you rightly start with the WASPs. You, you start the history with the WASP. I was really struck by the fact that there's not much in between the end of World War II and the early 70s. And so is that because you didn't really find anything? I mean, there really wasn't any effort during those almost 30 years? Not in aviation. I mean, the Navy wrote regulations specifically to keep women out of aircraft and off ships. And there were severe limitations on many of the other branches as well. So women were still, you know, very, very important in the military, not in aviation. Yeah, that's amazing. And so you mentioned Zumwalt, and I, and like any of these sort of seminal events, it, it, it happened both from inside and outside, I would say, things happening at the same time. And so these women weren't necessarily looking to be pioneers or crusaders or to break glass ceilings or anything else. They were just a lot of them had a passion to serve. They had family members who had served. And then, of course, he came at it from this really pragmatic sense. So tell us a little bit about some of their backgrounds. Most of them, all but one, came from military families. Several of them had extensive flying experience. Rosemary Mariner was a multi-engine instrument flight instructor already. She had gone to Purdue with like 620 hours logged when she joined the Navy. Several others had extensive flying experience. One or two had soloed, but did not. And one other had their private certificate. Only one had never flown before. And her experience was actually more typical of the male naval aviators because most men, I think at that point, weren't necessarily going into the Navy to fly. They were going into the Navy and they found themselves steered into flight training. So that's how that, that sort of evolved. I think you're absolutely right that they really didn't expect that they were going to be breaking, I think, what was called the iron plate, the armor-plated ceiling. (laughs) And honestly, I think a lot of the men didn't really expect them to succeed, and I'm not even sure Admiral Zumwalt knew what to do with them. They had this plan to get them to winning their wings, and then after that, it was kind of unclear what, what happened to them, if there would be appropriate billets for them, how they would butt up against men following the traditional track. Yeah. And, and you do talk about that and go into some good detail, which I think is really important, is that it's not just about the training and making it through the training. There was, once they got onto active duty, they couldn't do what they were trained to do, which is in many cases fight and and serve. I mean, you talked about they, in some cases, like couldn't go out to the ship. And so there were lots of restrictions on their activities. Right. They discovered that 
they were not allowed to carry to qualify, which is the singular achievement of a naval aviator. That's what distinguishes them from all other. They were not permitted to do that. There at the time were three pipelines, depending, among other things, on the um, flight cadets' grades. The top scoring men got to fly jets. Everybody else got props and helos. The women weren't allowed to, to uh, fly jets. Joellen Drag Osland, who was the first Navy female helicopter pilot, decided realized that she was not allowed to fly out to ships. That was the primary job, was flying supplies from shore to ship and back. She was being evaluated by those standards, but she wasn't allowed to do the job. She ended up plaintiff in a class action lawsuit, federal lawsuit, challenging um, those restrictions and won somewhat of a, of a victory, although the combat exclusion wouldn't be lifted for quite some time after. Yeah, right. So that speaks, I guess, a bit to obviously the rules, but also the culture. You do get into the culture a little bit. So for those of us who didn't live during this period or, or follow it kind of in real time, describe what it must have been like for them. They came in, like we've talked about, just wanting to serve, wanting to have the same evaluations as their male counterparts. They must have faced just incredible, incredible obstacles and, and such intense pressure. I mean, there was certainly more pressure on them than on any male flight training candidate because they were women all the coverage of the time and there was extensive coverage of these women there was such public interest in ooh girls are going to fly for the military and all the coverage focused on their appearance even the most accomplished pilots you know ooh you know she's a pretty brunette did they belong there did they have upper body strength? Would they harm unit cohesion, which was, you know, the argument for segregation in the military, you know, a couple of decades before? They were also expected to be ambassadors for the Navy and women in the Navy in the program, the flight training program. So they had to do interviews and they had to go and do TV game shows and pose for pictures. And then when they got to their assignments, had to do things like pushback against commanding officers who said, well, we don't have a bathroom for you. You can't use an officer's bathroom and there's no ladies room. Restrictions on promotions, on promotion opportunity. And these were the sorts of things that they had to fight for. And in many cases, successfully with help from up the chain of command, I think maybe in ways they didn't expect, in addition to the resistance from up the chain of command and from within the squadrons, there was both resistance and assistance. Yeah. So they obviously saw, well, especially those that made longer careers, huge amounts of change over that time. Did they, did they have a sense for how impactful their service was and, and how impactful that, you know, that sacrifice that they made to be first was? I think maybe not at first. But I think at some point it must have occurred to them that they really were making history and that people were paying attention and that they were making change not only for themselves, but for the generations who followed. So there was this huge push in Congress in the early 1990s to finally lift the combat exclusion. And these cohorts of active duty pilots from all branches were in Congress educating the members of the committee and the subcommittee. The WASP were there. All generations of women who had served, their families came. And at that point, the women I'm writing about were not going to be flying in combat. They had aged out. They were too old. They weren't doing this for themselves. They were doing this for the generations to follow. So you must have ex had certain expectations coming into this about what they faced, the, the challenges, the opportunities. I'm sure there were still many surprises that you learned about. So tell me what, 
what surprised you most, I guess, doing the research and writing the book? Maybe one thing was just how both proud and humble they were about their achievements. I think a number of them, maybe all of them knew they had done something special, but that was part of their lives. It's done. They've moved on. They have achieved other things. And, you know, many of them, a couple of them had extensive archives, documents, photos, memorabilia, and they were just sitting in a bin. They weren't necessarily doing anything with them. It was just something they did that they were proud of and they had moved on and they were so welcoming, opening their homes and opening their archives. And it amazed me that they would let a stranger do this. They didn't know me. (laughs) You know, hello, I'm the stranger and I want to write about this part of your life. And they were, they were very, very welcoming. Oh, wow. That's great. Obviously, there are so many parallels to other industries, other activities, broader aviation still, commercial aviation and general aviation. When you extend the view out to aviation as a whole, what do you think some of the challenges are? Where are some of the opportunities, I guess, in terms of equality and and better access, whether it's careers or or just even as a recreation for, for female pilots? Well, unfortunately, some of the same issues that the women in my book were facing, which were some of the same issues that the WASP were facing, some women are still facing today. Mm-hmm. There's still pushback. There's still the old boys network. You know, there's still, you know, those still kind of you know, side eye glances. You can still taxi up to a fuel pump and the line guy looks around and says, where's the pilot? You know, I'm the only one here. But, you know, there's there's been remarkable progress, maybe a little late. One thing that really surprised me was that back in the 70s when Jane Skiles O'Day was um, stationed and rode to Spain, and she was the one who was told she wasn't allowed to use the bathroom, uh, she became the military's first pregnant pilot. Now, there were no maternity uniforms, so she had to create something from civilian clothing that resembled one, which caused a bit of a, a stir. Her CO didn't like it, but, you know, she did it anyway. The Navy rolled out a prototype maternity flight suit this past summer. Oh, my gosh. Just this past summer. Wow. And it makes sense. You know, we're not talking about necessarily combat pilots, but women who are in their prime flying years are also in their prime childbearing years. They have been trained at tremendous public expense to do this incredible technical job. And they want to have a family and they have no appropriate clothing. They're buying flight suits that don't fit with loose clothing that could catch on the flight controls. And this was not a problem that anybody saw fit to fix until this summer. Wow. But it is being considered at least. Yeah. One thing I found really interesting just in the last year is that the FAA is now reevaluating the gendered language Mm -hmm. in all its communications and its regulations. And there were a series of them. public information sessions that they ran last summer and they've started changing notums or not not notice to air men anymore. It's notice to air mission. A drone is an uncrewed aerial vehicle. And from what I gather, this came from the drone within the drone industry because Hmm. they were concerned that they were not getting as many qualified candidates as they might because the language was exclusionary. And they went to the FAA and said, Hey, you know what? This is an issue. And the FAA agreed. I mean, I'm thrilled. I've been called an airman for the last several decades, and I'm not a man. Yeah, right. (laughs) So that kind of culture shift is changing. I mean, it's slow, and I don't really expect it will be smooth. But, you know, there is an evolving situation here, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, Bev, so the book is Wings of Gold, the story of the first women naval aviators. It's a great book. Where can folks get it? Um, it's available on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, at your favorite local independent bookstore. Awesome. In print, uh, ebook, and audiobook. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. David, the, the whole discussion is actually turns out really timely because women in aviation is happening as we release the show this week. And one of the women that we're talking about here, Rosemary Mariner, is being inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, the uh, Way uh, National Convention is in Nashville, and that is a big deal for a lot of folks. And so thank you again, Ian, for tracking down Bev. And I would love to fly with Beverly one of these days, too. So hopefully our paths will cross in the future as well. All right, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And Austin does keep us on on track and paces us and has been with us for the entire six years. Six, Since the beginning. Six seasons of this. Yeah. Thank you to Austin. All right, so you can still find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk or wherever you get your podcast. All right, we'll see you next time, David. See you next time, Ian. Hangertalk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.